This is the first Saturday of the month of November, so it's the time to give consideration to the Dhamma teaching on the Forest Sangha calendar page for the month of November, which this year is um, a teaching by Ajahn Chah. And it's uh, obviously Ajahn Chah didn't speak English, so this is a adaptation of a translation of something Ajahn Chah said. And um, but I, <clears throat> although it is uh, once or twice removed from what Ajahn Chah actually said. I'm confident that it still contains the essence of what he was trying to say. And the text actually says that you don't find peace by being on a mountain or in a cave. You can travel to the place of the Buddha's enlightenment and not get any closer to enlightenment. What matters is being aware, wherever you are, whatever you're doing. So this is very typical Ajahn Chah speak. This is very characteristic of of the way uh, Lumpur Chah would would present the traditional teachings aimed at helping people find real benefit for themselves. Hmm. That's not always the case. That that all religions, or even within Buddhism, that the teachings are presented in a way whereby those who hear can actually access it. In fact, it's quite normal in Buddhist circles still today that teachings will be given in Pali and nobody understands, well, hardly anybody understands the thing that's being said. And Lumpo Chao always considered it very important and um, we're very grateful that he did that the teachings are, as the Buddha himself said, accessible to everybody. And what Tajan Chah recognized is this uh, tendency that all deluded egos have is to project outward onto the world the power that actually belongs to our hearts. The ability, the spiritual ability that, that he and all the great teachers have realized is within, uh, so long as where our consciousness is defined, characterized by ignorance, then the habit is to project it out onto the world. And, and so accordingly, you look at that nice picture there on the calendar and you see this peaceful-looking monk sitting up on a mountain. I think, it's, I think it might be one of the monks from a Bayagiri monastery out hiking in Yosemite National Park. And you can think, oh, he must be so peaceful. What a wonderful opportunity, that lovely, lucky monk. Here I am in my awful, miserable circumstance, suffering. If only I could be out on a mountain. And Well, Ajahn Chah is highlighting that way of thinking as not necessarily helpful. Not to say that anything wrong with being on mountains. Ajahn Chah himself did spend time 
in solitude going off to live on mountains and probably in caves as well and in forests and practicing in solitude can bring benefit but what he's wanting us to look at is the way we approach practice it's not so much what we do where we go but how we do it how do we pick up our practices our spiritual disciplines and the tendency as a saying for all deluded egos is to project outwards on and so what happens is you get a lot of people believing in organized religion and and forming religious clubs and and cults and and believing in rituals and getting upset when their rituals are not followed and and believing and being intimidated by hierarchy and what Ajahn Chah wanted us to realize was that the cultivation of awareness, what really matters is being aware wherever we are, whatever we're doing. The cultivation of awareness means that we can see where we're doing this, where we're making ourselves weak, where we're making ourselves vulnerable to intimidation by conventions. So, so again, it's not the case that uh, organized religion <coughs> is, is all no good, but <coughs> where we believe too much in conventional religious structures uh, and rituals, uh, then rather than those practices being a support for our liberation, they in fact enslave us. And we can see this in all religions, and including our own. Uh, people sometimes get upset about about the we don't do things the right way. Somebody came to see me recently. It was was talking about some of the Thai supporters criticizing me. I think even now they go to another monastery because they get upset that I only light one stick of incense and I don't light three. That according to their tradition, you've got to light three sticks of incense. You only light one stick of incense, that's what you do for funerals. And, and I've always made it very clear that if they're willing to come and repaint our dumb hall and our reception room on a regular basis and compensate for the, the smoke that's created, then that's all right, I'll light three sticks of incense. It's not a moral issue whether you light one stick or three sticks of incense. It's a convention. And conventions have their place, but if we hold to the conventions in the wrong way, then, as I said, they don't actually liberate us, they enslave us. We get intimidated rather than freed up. So, of course, this is not uh, an encouragement to to do a, a Krishnamurti and, and flip to the other side, yeah. having practiced strictly according to all sorts of forms and conventions and structures for many years, Krishnamurti suddenly went to the other side and spent the rest of his life trashing meditation and organized religion. And uh, people who choose to follow that, well, that's, that's their choice, but that's certainly not what the Buddha or Ajahn Chah was encouraging. It's understandable. Yeah, the Buddha himself did do something like that before he was the Buddha. You know, for 29 years he was indulging and having a good time and, and then around the age of 29 went out and saw old age sickness and death, got depressed and then went to the other extreme and became a serious ascetic for a few years. And then, thankfully, fortunately, <clears throat> he discovered the middle way, which is not indulging, is not rejecting. And then, rather than dismissing his previous teachers and teachings, the very first thought he had was, how can I go back and benefit my teachers before me? 
a demonstration of the Buddha's uh, wisdom and, and compassion. And so we, uh, we can be very grateful that the, the Buddha and the great teachers since the Buddha have, have pointed out what really matters. But they're not asking us to blindly believe them over and over again. Uh, it's the skillfulness of the great teachers is holding up a mirror and showing how that even the spiritual disciplines, if we pick them up in the wrong way, we're going to hurt ourselves. We're going to make our condition worse. So we can feel grateful, um, but we express that gratitude by paying close attention. Say, what, what does it actually mean? What is the Buddha really talking about? What is Ajahn Shah really talking about here? I mean, you can read that verse at the beginning of the month and say, oh, that's a nice verse. Oh, yeah, that's what I do, awareness. Yeah, I'm one of those Buddhists, we do this. And, and then get on the rest of the month not paying any more attention to it. No. But if we are really interested in realizing what Ajahn Chah realized and doing what the Buddha asked us to do, then we'll take it to another level and actually seriously consider the way we pick up our views and inspecting our basic views. And that's what I would say is the essence of the, the, the real meaning of this, these few sentences by Ajahn Chah. He asks us to question our fundamental views about practice. Are we still <clears throat> projecting our energy out onto conventions and structures, expecting the theoretical teachings believing in the theoretical teachings, expecting that to save us, um, expecting our teachers and to be perfect, expecting the conventions to be always agreeable. Or are we, are we, is our view, is our fundamental view, one of looking inwards and seeing how we hold these teachings? Even the Buddha's view, we can make into wrong view. Even the teachings of the Buddha, we can make into wrong view if we grasp it. And so this is, uh, this is a big question, uh, an important question is you know, how do we see our approach to practice and is it developing? Because yeah. we can find some uh, initial inspiration and get very enthusiastic and have some, have some good feelings going about our initial engagement with the practice but then we, we can just turn it into a memory rather than investigating it and being willing, being willing to question the fundamental views that we have about practice. And, and it shows up that when we, um, when we get challenged, you know, somebody challenges us, tells us that our views are wrong. And, and how does that feel? When somebody tells us our views or insinuates or hints or contradicts us, uh, how does it feel? And, I was very pleased uh, when I uh, recently, uh, in, in a, a book by His Royal Highness Prince Charles, the Prince of Wales, his book called Harmony, he raises this in I think the very first paragraph of his book. The book itself is talking about the, the, uh, the not pending crisis, the present crisis, but worsening crisis of uh, the, the environmental issues that planet Earth is facing. Uh, still a few deniers around but uh, the science is, is becoming absolutely undeniable that planet earth is going to be having a very hard time over the next 50 years and 
Prince Charles points out that you can keep tweaking, you can keep tweaking the the economical structures, the political structures, the educational structures, the social structures. We can keep tweaking these things, but what really is needed is addressing the fundamental view we have about existence. So I don't know whether His Royal Highness has been reading Buddhist teachings, I hope so, but I certainly think he's right. There's no amount of tweaking, like in our spiritual life, we can tweak our practice. Here and there we can do things, but are we really looking at the fundamental views that cause suffering? Even clinging to religious views is is another expression of our materialistic way of thinking. The world doesn't really appreciate this. You know, the world of politics and always creating new laws to deal with things. You know, some time ago, thankfully, there were laws created to ban slavery. But there are still slaves in the world. You know, slavery wasn't dealt with. It was just controlled. The laws created to give women the vote. But that didn't deal with abuse and injustice. These laws just tweak things. And likewise, with our spiritual exercises, we can take on these things and we can create a little concentration or we can have a little faith going. But are we willing to really question our fundamental views that cause us to project out onto the world, to believe too much? in our views and opinions. Um, I remember when uh, some time ago I was visiting with a friend in New Zealand who um, he was a, a bhikshu in the Mahayana Korean tradition, a disciple of Master Kusan of Songkwang Sat Monastery in Korea. And, and we were at his house and there was a lay supporter there and uh, so this, uh, this friend, this picture, he, he was uh, going to do the dishes uh, for his mother. And so he, he took his outer robe off and, and folded it properly and very mindfully put it down on, on top of the freezer to get on with doing the dishes. And this uh, lay support absolutely had a fit, completely freaked out, and grabbed the robe and took it off and said, how can you put that robe on the freezer? Your mother's probably got meat in there. Vegetarianism is, is a virtuous um, approach to dealing with the cruelty on the planet. But if we cling to our spiritual practices or our views and opinions, it's not going to liberate us, it's not going to make us free. And, uh, so all the Buddha's teaching is encouraging us and pointing us in this direction. And one of the most regularly recited and quoted and well-known teachings of the Buddha, the Mahamangala Sutta. In the beginning it describes how this radiant deva approached the Buddha and asked the Buddha to give him the most auspicious signs. And this deva presumably was asking for the, the, the most auspicious astrological configuration or the best kind of crystals to hang on to or which direction to bow before you go to sleep at night or whatever, spiritual materialism. But the Buddha, typically, classically in his way, as he always did, turned it around, refuted that, didn't even acknowledge the request, but pointed inwards to how to cultivate the heart, how to work with the mind, how to work with 
our own direct experience of life. And the very first stanza talks about, and most of you will know it, avoid the company of those who are going to pull you down. And cultivate, develop the company of those who are going to elevate your consciousness, those who are going to lift you up. In other words, take responsibility for the people you associate with. And then the third line of puja cha puja anang, use your discernment to discover that which is truly worthy of honour. Now, what do we honour? What do we bow down to? Mostly our views and opinions. Yeah. We attach these views and opinions as if there's something really worthy of honour. And what the Buddha is asking us to do is to investigate that. What do we, what do we bow down to? What do we honour? Puja ja pujani anang. Honour that which is worthy of honour. And he's not just saying believe in this. The Buddha never did say that. But he did say this is worth investing in. He did say this is worth trusting in. But trust, as we all know in our Buddhist teaching, is very different from mere belief. So the last thing the Buddha wants us to do, or Ajahn Chah is asking us to do, is to believe in him, or to grasp at his views and opinions. But to take them, to listen to them, and to investigate. And see what is really worthy of honouring. And in that discourse, in the Mahamangala Sutta, the... uh, it goes through all the different virtues that, that uh, support practice. And then at the very end it says the thing that is most worthy of honouring is the insight into the Four Noble Truths. Arya Satchana Dasanam. Nibbana Satchakiriya. So insight into the Four Noble Truths. Cultivating whatever it takes so as to be able to take responsibility for our life. And then Nibbana Satchakiriya. Realization of unobstructed awareness. Realization of unobstructed awareness is the most worthwhile thing to do. So, is this actually what we're doing? Do we have that in the forefront of our consciousness? Do we, do we think about that? Do we look at our relationship to unobstructed awareness? We can believe in it, Nibbana. We can wish all beings realize Nibbana. We can go around wishing all beings realize Nibbana. We say, I believe in Nibbana. But what is Nibbana? I mean, if we talk about Nibbana, well, we don't know Nibbana. Most people don't know Nibbana. They can trust that it's there. But how do you, what do you do? What do we do about it? Well, if, if we translate Nibbana as unobstructed awareness, that is the awareness that the Buddha have, which is completely free from any greed, aversion and delusion, no ignorance or conceit remaining, irreversibly, unshakably free from all suffering. If that's what we have confidence is possible, then what we do is we investigate what we're doing, when we're doing, and how we're doing that which is not unobstructed. In other words, our obstructions. And so, so being aware wherever we are, whatever we're doing, as Ajahn Chah was encouraging us, is to just do that. Is to be aware in the moment that we are creating obstructions. Where are we doing it? When are we doing it? How are we doing it? And if we are still holding too tightly to our materialistic views and opinions about how life should be and 
believing in rituals, believing in systems and techniques too much, but not really willingly and feelingly questioning our approach to practice, then we miss the opportunity over and over again. We don't see actually how we're responsible for creating the obstructions. Maybe we somehow kind of hope that the obstructions are going to disappear sometime in the future. We hold out. We mistake faith for hope. Faith and trust is very different from hope. Hope has got its place, but again, we don't want to cling to it. Now, talking about uh, cultivating awareness and a willingness and an interest to look at the moments where we're creating the obstructions to awareness. Also, I think it's worth mentioning that for some people, sometimes it just happens. unexpectedly, unexplainably, suddenly there's this experience of, of, of vast openness. And they weren't doing any spiritual practices. They weren't on retreat. Uh, they weren't taking on any special disciplines. But suddenly there's this huge sense of absolute okayness. Like it's, like the, it's like the edges, the limitations have fallen away. And there's a perception of it's like this. It's just so. And they didn't do anything to get there. Yeah. Yeah. A friend of the community was telling me recently how they had such an experience. They were at a, at a party in, in the city. They weren't on retreat, weren't in some spiritual sanctuary somewhere. They were at a party and, and then they had such an experience of just this falling into, abiding as, vast awareness where... There, was, there couldn't be anything wrong. Nothing ever was wrong. There's nothing wrong now and never could be wrong. And even the thought that things could be wrong was just so. Everything was just so. And there was no effort to make it that way. Now, sometimes perhaps Buddhist fundamentalists or Buddhist purists would, would dismiss such experiences, but I think they, they miss out if they do so. Such experiences happen. And if such experiences happen and we have some spiritual education then I think there's a good chance we'll really benefit from it. What's unfortunate is for those people who have such experiences but they haven't got any spiritual education and then they misjudge this wonderful opportunity to appreciate the possibility of spiritual life and then they start trying to understand it. What did I do to bring this about? Now, if there's... um, some preparedness, some, some decent sort of spiritual education, then that very thought, that very inclination, that very feeling, as consciousness starts to collapse and this thought form arises, what do they do to bring that about? You don't believe it. You don't believe it. Refuse to believe it. That momentum of letting go is stronger than the momentum of clinging. If we're committed to being aware here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, if we've trained ourselves with this, and then we do 
have the good fortune to find ourselves in such a situation, then maybe instead of the mind collapsing around the thought form of how did that happen, we're willing to expand and open and says, I don't know. We don't have to know. We don't have to spoil it. Um, maybe you heard about various teachers, various experiences, uh, maybe met some people who had these experiences and, and then they run off and try to read books and listen to tapes and download videos trying to understand the experience and is missing the point. The experience was what it was and if it stays, well then it stays but more likely what happens is the experience passes, whatever conditions were there have changed and now it's become a memory and then we're left with what? We're left with this work that Ajahn Chah is pointing towards. What really matters is being aware wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever's happening. That readiness to say, this is practice. You know, not to default to doing some technique. I, mean, I often meet people who, you know, they can't go through a day without sitting for such and such a number of period of minutes in their meditation and it's because it's just another expression of their controlling ego. You know, slightly more spiritual ego, but they're using it as just a way of controlling life. Mm-hmm. Like that book, Ajahn Chah's teaching, everything is teaching us. There's nothing outside of teaching, nothing outside of practice. And so if we have that interest, then, again, as Ajahn Chah would say, practice is all day, all night, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. Everything is practice. And if something disappointing happens, like open the door, Put your feet in your crocs and they're full of water and you've got cold, wet socks. How does it feel? Well, it's not an agreeable sensation. What happens? Does consciousness collapse? Does our awareness collapse, contract around that feeling and then go up and into something come out of our mouth? Or do we remember... Take a deep breath, remind ourselves, expand, expand. Yes, this is it. Yes. Yes, it's disagreeable. But do we have to become it? This is practice. Yes, it's like this. In meditation, have some, maybe an experience of some limitations falling away and experience yourself in some sort of expanded field of awareness and, and you have a sense of this perception of it's just so it's just so yeah and that makes sense but how do we bring that into daily life well what we don't do is hold on to the memory of sitting in meditation and think what I've got to do is go back and do more meditation all the time maybe what you need to do is less meditation inhibit the feeling you've got to go back and do something to bring about an experience of openness and face the experience that we're having right now, the everyday mundane experience of life, whether it's disagreeable, like sticking your feet in, in some wet crocs, or, or agreeable, like <clears throat> just looking at the rugby results, and you see England just beat Australia. Ooh, whippy, that feels good. Yeah, what do we do with that? Do we get overly pleased with England beating Australia? That's a possibility. Or do we just simply feel it's just so? It's like that. A good barometer for practice is not 
whether we're having reactions, but how long does it take us to remember? The Pali word for mindfulness, sati, has, if you look at the etymology of that word, at the root is the word remembering. Recollection, the Buddha talking about in mindfulness is giving these images like the gatekeeper at the city wall watching who comes and goes, checking out who comes and goes through through the door. That's... uh, this is what our mindfulness is watching, watching here, watching the heart and the sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions. What's happened? What's a reaction? A liking, disliking. How do we react to it? Do we make a problem out of it? I don't personally. I don't even like using the word problem. I don't. I realised some years ago that believing that problems are real actually solidifies problems. But there aren't any problems. If problems were real, you, you couldn't solve them. If problems were ultimate, they'd be there all the time, and they're not ultimate. Problems are a deluded perception that we create by saying things shouldn't be this way. So yes, there's difficulties, there's issues, there's pain, there's suffering, but actually there are no real problems. Hmm. And is that our reality? Is that our world? Or do we create problems? I know, certainly, it's very easy to create problems. I was on a train the other day going down to London, and I like riding on trains, especially if I've got lots of room around me, and i got a nice cup of coffee, and eating my egg and cress sandwich, and, and you know, nobody hassling me, and just having a nice time looking at the countryside, and really, really love it. And then uh, I think it was somewhere around about York, this uh, scruffy fellow got on, really scruffy, pretty elderly chap got on and, and sat directly opposite me and and uh, started talking loudly on his mobile phone and if that wasn't enough, the next thing he starts clipping his nails. He pulls his nail clipper out and he's going, click, click, click. I go, oh, how disgusting. I said, oh, you're suffering. You're suffering. Thought, well, it's good. I didn't wait too long. I didn't wait too long. I caught it pretty quick. And then, you, what's the suffering? Where is the suffering? So inquire. Where is the suffering? This old man, okay. So he's an old man. I think he maybe even was clicking his nails down on the phone at the same time for a while. So, okay, well, I've got a phone. I use the phone. And I've got fingernails. I clip my fingernails. I tend not to do them in public. But, you know, my fingernails, it's not like, it's not like, coughing up infected phlegm and spitting it out. I mean, that is really disgusting. I mean, fingernails are just fingernails, aren't they? What's the problem? So this old chap is clipping his fingernails on the train. Where is the suffering? Really, where's the suffering? Where's the suffering? It's not in the nails. It's not even a clipping nail. It's not noise. I mean, the noise. It's click, click. It's not nothing. It's not the sight. It's not the sound. Couldn't smell his nails. <laughs> Where's the suffering? Yeah. It's here. I just don't like it. I just don't like people clipping the nails in front of me. Yeah. So what? So what are you going to do? Okay, disliking. So what's the problem with disliking? I mean, you can't stop disliking. I'm sure the Buddha disliked all sorts of things. But did the Buddha suffer over disliking? He disliked monks being disobedient and noisy, so he went off to the forest to get a break. He disliked it. But did he suffer? No, the Buddha wasn't suffering from those recalcitrant, troublesome, obnoxious monks. He just didn't want to be around them, so he went away. But he wasn't suffering. That's the difference. So to recognize it, where's the suffering? 
to bring our awareness, whatever you're doing, wherever you're doing it, not thinking that going to Bodh Gaya is going to free us from suffering. That's what the deluded ego tends to do. As far as I know, Ajahn Chah never went to Bodh Gaya, and I don't think he was limited as a result. Our materialistic minds can think that somehow, you know, out there, mountains or caves or Bodh Gaya or, or relics, you know, having relics. I remember there was a period uh, where there was a, a monastery in Ayutthaya had apparently obtained some very precious relics. And there's a big festival going on enshrining these relics. And Ajahn Chah went to this and um, I guess he didn't behave himself very well because he, he, he gave them quite a scolding going on about their relics. Praparomasadi rikatat, praparomasadi rikatat, and, and almost you know, taking the mickey out of these people getting carried away with their precious relics. Now, he wasn't being disrespectful about the relics, but he was pointing to people being overly obsessed about relics. And having relics is not the point. I think it wasn't long after the Buddha died and kings were having wars over some of the Buddha's relics. Relics are not going to free us. Meditation techniques are not going to free us. So long as we are losing awareness, so long as we're forgetting awareness, so long as awareness is collapsing, and we engage our habits of clinging, then we're not really practicing and we're not finding the peace that we set out for, looking for. So practice is not always easy. Sometimes we've got to put up with conditions we don't like. But that's what's called for. We need to not just develop the bits of ourselves that we feel confident about. um, If you have the good fortune to live with a teacher who doesn't care whether you, whether you like him or her anymore at all, and then hopefully they'll, they'll hold up to us a mirror at just the time when we're doing what we're doing that keeps us locked into our suffering and offer us encouragement. You know, sometimes that encouragement will be to do things that help us to let go, help us to see the places where we're weak. It's easy to develop the places where we're strong the places where we feel confident, the split-off parts of us where we're really already good, already capable, already able. Ajahn Sumato used to tell a story many years ago of when he was visiting, I think uh, it was Manchester, I think, and he was staying with this fellow who was organising the talk. He was going to give it, Ajahn Sumato was going to give it a local Buddhist group there, and this guy was doing a PhD on emptiness, and I uh, was asking Ajahn Sumedha questions and so on. And, and at the same time, he's making a cup of coffee for Ajahn Sumedha. And, and then he brings the coffee and offers it to Ajahn Sumedha. And Ajahn Sumedha goes to take a drink. And the guy's just given him a cup of boiling water. He had forgotten to put the coffee in. And he was so busy talking about emptiness. He was so lost in this split-off part of his mind where he's very capable. He's like a mental gymnast, this guy. I mean, talk about a brain. Yeah. When it came to being in his body and learning how to make a proper cup of coffee, he didn't know how to do it. And, and this is what awareness is about. Awareness is about how to be with this, whatever we're doing. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I recommend people you know, try to find your own word for this. What do you think the Buddha really meant by sati? What do you think Ajahn Chah really meant by awareness? What does it really mean in practice? Like I was thinking about this earlier, 
think, well, you know, like you've got some visiting <clears throat> Sangha members coming to the monastery and you're carrying a tray of tea in to the room. Now, what does it mean to do that with awareness? What are you doing when you're carrying a tray of several teacups and a teapot into a room? What does it mean to do that with awareness? It means holding the tray so it doesn't tip over. It means watching your feet so you don't trip on the carpet. It means checking to see whether you're interrupting a conversation. It means paying attention. It means being careful. So this is what I think is called for. If we we want to internalize these teachings uh, that that the Buddha gave, that uh, these uh, comments this, uh, this evening, that Ajahn Chah encouraging us to reflect on what really matters. You, know, you, can, you can go to Bodhgaya however many times and just get more conceited. Yeah. It may well be that going to Bodhgaya helps us let go and feeds our faith. And the Buddha, the Buddha didn't dismiss totally all these things at all. He did, in fact, point out that paying respect to the Dhamma wheel, paying respect to the Dhamma seat, you know, showing veneration to the Bodhi tree, these these objects of veneration do have their place. But when we do it, are we doing it in a way that helps us let go, or is it just another form of clinging? So, thank you very much this evening for your attention. <laughs> Dhamma vada kathaya sadhu kha dhandha dhamma say